Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It would be, I compare it to, it would be like a red state revolt of Donald Trump in the, in the United States. If all of a sudden states like Mississippi and Alabama and Arkansas and Georgia started protesting, <laughs> took to the streets against Donald Trump's policies. You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts, Matthew Galt and Jason Fields. Hello and welcome to War College. I'm Jason Fields. Co-host Matthew Galt is on a diplomatic mission to Alderaan. We are very aware that we've been spending a lot of time in the Middle East lately. But I don't think you can blame us. It's a uniquely tense place. The armed forces of Syria, Russia, Turkey, the United States, Israel, Iraq, and Iran are all taking part in the fighting. And that's not to mention non-state actors like the Kurds and Syrian rebels of every possible stripe at this point, from secular to religious extremist. Today, we're focusing on Iran. Amir Hanjani is a senior fellow with the Atlantic Council's South Asia Center, and an expert on Iran. He also wrote some fantastic op-eds for me when I was an editor at Reuters. Thanks for joining us. A pleasure to be with you, and uh, I, I, I hope I'm still writing fantastic op-eds for Reuters uh, since you've left. <laughs> <laughs> you still are. I just don't have the pleasure of editing them anymore. <laughs> so it, it's my loss, but no, Reuters is still doing fine out of the deal. So can we just start off with sort of a bit of a primer? Um, Whose side is Iran on in the Syrian conflict? Well, um, first of all, it's, uh, it's great to be with you, and that's a really important topic, and I think it's very timely, and I think it can be very confusing to people who aren't, like you and I, fervent Middle East watchers, to disentangle you know, a lot of the fact from fiction and um, see the, you know, uh, hear the, to get, get rid of all the noise, background noise. I don't think that they're they're ostensibly Iran says they're on the side of the Syrian government and that government is the Assad regime. They were technically asked by the Assad regime to come in and support them in their fight against the rebels. Uh, but as you know, you and I know and as your listeners know, you know, states don't act benevolently. <laughs> they have they act because of their self-interest and Iran has very real interests in Syria. And uh, it would not be there just because uh, Assad asked them to if they did not feel those interests were threatened by his downfall. Now, you say that, and 
another justification that's been cited for the alliance is, uh, and I think, and please uh, help me with this, I think it seems like it's widely misunderstood. There's been talk that Assad's regime and Iran are co-religionists, but they're not exactly the same, right? I mean, no, they're not all. They're not all. In fact, that's kind of a bullshit answer, isn't it? Or maybe you can explain. It, that. it is. It, it is. I mean, it, you know, there's the, the Iranian, the majority. Iran follows the, the 12er sect of Shia Islam, um, which really means that they go by 12 imams and, and then the last one is an occultation. He sort of comes back in a time the way Christ does. Um, and, it, and it's an Islamic Republic. You know, if those who have traveled to Iran have been to Iran, you know, while it's open in many ways, you know, there's still, it's still closed in a lot of other ways too. You know, there's alcohol is not freely available. You know, there's no such thing as nightclubs and, and so forth. Uh, Syria is a secular regime and the minority regime, which actually rules Syria, the regime, the, the, the minority religion of, of the Assad regime is the Alawite sect, which is a sect of Shia Islam, but it's not as uh, it just follows different precepts than the than the than the uh, than the twelver sect of Shiism that Iran follows. So, are they loosely in the same family? Yes, but are is there does their religion permeate their government and and their domestic policies the way it does in Iran? Absolutely not. Syria, you know, was a, was a very open society. Headscarves are not mandatory. There was alcohol flowing at all hotels. It's, it's, it's just, it was just a, it's a very different, different country, a very different, different flavor of, of religion than, than that of Iran. These, these states are, are bound together by common interests. They're not bound together by ethnicity. Iranians are Persian, Syrians are Arab. They're not really bound together by religion either. Can you talk a little bit about what those common interests are? Certainly. I mean, you have to go back to the time of the Iran-Iraq war. Most all regimes in the region supported Saddam Hussein. The Gulf states did. Jordan did. Syria was the outlier. It did not actually supported Iran. And the Iranian Islamic Republic, the, the political elite, the establishment never forgot that. When Israel invaded Lebanon and went through the south of Lebanon, it was, and, and Iran helped the Shia in Lebanon organize and founded Hezbollah, it was through Syria where the arms and the training and the, the sort of the flow of people would go through to get to to southern Syria, uh, sorry, southern uh, southern Lebanon. So for for Iran, um, Syria was always a gateway to Hezbollah, but also was a place where it had a forward position vis-a-vis Israel, and it was a way for them to deter an Israeli strike by you know being in southern Lebanon by having a presence or a footprint. In, uh, in Syria, although the footprint was very light, now it's quite heavy. That, that's really the tie that binds um, uh, Syria and Iran. It's, it's, it's this from the Iranian side. It's you know we have to we have to be there because we have to deter Israel from coming in and striking us. We have to be there because we have to support Hezbollah. The way we can only support Hezbollah is by having that corridor to get manpower and weapons into southern Lebanon from Syria. From the Syrian perspective. It's they don't really have friends in the region. And the only friends that they have, the Assad regime have, uh, has been Iran. And they saw that when the Arab Spring happened and people took the streets of Damascus. One by one, the Arab countries in the region 
started supporting the the rebels. The only country that, that in the region that supported the Assad regime was Iran. So um, it, it is a, uh, a mutually strategic relationship, if you will. Um, it's one that is in place because of what each side views as essential from the other. And that's what's caused this this relationship to grow over the last 40 years. Do you have any idea what the uh, people ruling Iran actually think of Bashar al-Assad? Uh, is there any talk that people uh, that you might have heard? Um, they're not. They're certainly not happy with how he's prosecuted this war. <laughs> and, you know, that they, they, they uh, I think that they, they wish he had some different policies in place at the beginning. That being said, you know, they support him, as I said, not because out of out of love and affection for him or his family or his tribe or his religion or his ethnicity. They support him because they know if Assad falls, then uh, a major chess piece of, of Iran in the region has fallen. Mm-hmm. And Syria goes into the Saudi, Jordanian, U.S. camp uh, and Iran loses a very powerful and strategic country. It doesn't have many friends in the region, so their ties to Assad are are ties because of their of their interest to Assad. They're not ties because they think you know, unlike let's say Iraq and southern Iraq, where there's a lot of ties that bind the Iranians and the southern Iraqis, their religion, their their, their border, um, cultural ties with the Kurds in the north of Iraq, linguistic ties, ethnic ties. With Syria, it's 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 a it's purely a, relationship of, of interest, of mutual interest. In order to understand this a little bit better, I was thinking you might be able to help explain a little bit about what the situation, what life right now is like in Iran itself. So it's enmeshed in a war beyond its borders. So can we talk a little bit about what's going on inside and how that might be affecting yes. it? Can we start off purely with the economics? What kind of shape is Iran's economy in? It's in very bad shape. Years of mismanagement, corruption, sanctions have really uh, made Iran into a economic basket case. Its its economy is predominantly state run. It's it's ossified, if you will. It's not able to meet the needs of its people, and you saw that in the in the uh, protests of of last month took place in cities that I hadn't even heard of. I had to look for on the map. But these cities are are cities, you know, that have the profile of cities and villages that the regime draws upon for their support. It would be, I compare it to, it would be like a red state revolt of Donald Trump in the in the United States. If all of a sudden states like Mississippi and Alabama and Arkansas and Georgia started protesting, <laughs> took to the streets against Donald Trump's policies. Right. That's what it was like in these cities where the, the, the regime draws on on support from these sort of rural, not as economically prosperous cities that have have very uh, religious communities. Um, that those are those are bastions of the regime that they draw. But yet it was those it was those cities that actually took the streets, and those villagers and those townsmen that, that took the streets, um, because the the economy is is just not meeting the needs of uh, uh, of its people. It's 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 quite sad because Iran is a very rich country. It's a large country. Um, it has a quite a dynamic population, but they've uh, they've really mismanaged 
that, that economy since the revolution and, and the chickens are coming home to roost now. When you say a rich country, part of it, would that include the money that was supposedly unfrozen in the wake of the Iran nuclear deal, or at least that's how the U.S. thinks of it, the Iran nuclear deal. I'm sure the Iranians yeah. call it something else. But not just – I don't just mean the cash uh, that uh, they might have gotten access to, but it's also supposed to be that they can now sell more oil in more places. So nothing's improved? I think that, you know, the, the nuclear deal, we, we keep saying, you know, in the election campaign here, they say, you know, we gave them $150 billion. Well, it's important to know that. So that we get it was that was their money to begin with. <laughs> uh, it's it, it was because of sanctions it was really blocked and frozen. Or it wasn't 150 million. It was closer to 100 100 billion. No, since the sanctions have been lifted, the nuclear related sanctions, Iran has been slowly and surely been able to access that that money, been able to sell its oil and gas and petrochemicals back into the international market, and it's 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 slowly recouping its 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 uh, its market share. In those international markets, but that's not enough. It's not enough. It's 80 million people. I mean, Iran is not, you know, it does not, you know, has production of about four million barrels a day, and it uses about 1.8 million domestically. So it really, you know, it sells about 2.2 million barrels of oil a day. Um, Saudi Arabia, you know, it's it's rival to the south, you know, has a population of about 30, 35 million people, and and sells 14 million barrels, uh, produces 14 million barrels of oil a day. I think. Consumes about three to four million, and, and then sells about ten million. So, you know, just to give you some idea of of, of scale, it, it needs much more. Just having the sanctions lifted to sell its oil and gas and unblocking a hundred billion dollars is is not enough. The sanctions that are still there, the secondary sanctions, and this perception that the U.S. could pull out of the of the nuclear deal and the old sanctions could come back on has not really allowed for foreign investments and for trade to, to pick up with Iran. In many ways, it's still in, in the penalty box economically. So where does that leave it with uh, in terms of, you know, when the leadership is looking out into the world, <laughs> what sort of lens does the their economic straits put on them? Does it have a big impact on why they're in Syria? Does it have... No, I, you know, I, I think we have to disentangle those two things. And, 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 and I'm not sure, you know, yes, many of the people that were protesting were unhappy with Iran's foreign policy, but there's no, you know, there's no poll that I could look to that says the majority of the Iranian people are not supportive of Iran's foreign policy. Because in, in point of fact, they are supportive of Iran fighting ISIS. They are supportive of Iran being fighting wars against Sunni extremism outside of Iran's borders, mm -hmm. because they know that if they're not fighting those wars outside of Iran's borders, the chance of fighting those wars inside Iran's borders increase. So I, I think it's, it's, you know, you, there's these snapshots, of these protesters saying, you know, we want to make sure that, you know, the money shouldn't be spent in Syria. Yes. I'm sure there are many people that feel that way. I'm just not sure that's the, how the majority of the people feel. You know, we don't know. We don't have a, an independent poll to, to assess that. At least I haven't seen one done. But what we do know is that these two things are separate in terms of what Iran spends in foreign foreign affairs and in these wars is a pittance to what it has and it has mismanaged over the last 40 years. So so, uh, you know, th this economy has been state run. It's 
40% of it is now controlled by the, or maybe as some people say 60%, I've seen some experts say 60% is controlled by the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guards. There is a lot of nepotism, there's a lot of corruption. Its banking sector is, for all intents and purposes, bankrupt. Most of its banks are, are holding a lot of bad debt. Their, their currency has been devalued, yet as the currency is devalued, but inflation is, is quite strong and prices have risen. So people's purchasing power, you know, the, over the last 10 years have gotten less and less and add to that sanctions that are, that have been really, really onerous. It's really a, a, a panoply of, of things that have come together to a perfect storm, you know, through a perfect storm that have, have put them where they are. But they only have the leadership only has itself to blame for that. And, and I think the nuclear deal, having the nuclear deal and having those sanctions removed actually brought more of these things to the surface. You mean because they weren't able to directly just blame sanctions for the economic problem? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Exactly. You brought up the Revolutionary Guard as an economic entity. Uh, yes. So we hear about them all the time as a military force. I mean, there are parts of it, at least, are called elite military force. Maybe you could explain a little bit more about what they mean, who they are inside the country then. Yeah, the Revolutionary Guard, you know, are they number between 250 and 400,000. They are, since the revolution happened, because the, 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 when the revolution happened, the clerical regime was quite distrustful of the traditional army and the traditional navy of Iran. They viewed those entities as being very nationalistic and very pro, um, the previous regime, the Shah's regime. So they set up the Revolutionary Guard as a, and they are protectors of the Islamic Republic. And they have expeditionary forces, such as the Quds Force, that go outside the country and conduct operations. Inside the country, though, they, over the last, since really, really the last 15, 16 years, but accelerated during the Ahmadinejad presidency, they have started to, to gain a lot of economic influence. They have corporations. They have front companies. They're in oil and gas. They're in construction. They're in telecoms. They're in insurance. They're in banking. They're in everything, and uh, they operate ports. They operate 
the airports in Iran. So they they are they are they are in everything, and, the, and, and they have real economic interests. And um, because they were uh, it was seen at the time, they were the ones in, during the Iran Iraq War that were fighting the war and and took heavy heavy casualties, heavy losses. When those people came back, they wanted jobs and they wanted their share of the cake. And that has only increased over time. And the sanctions that the U.S. and its allies have placed on on Iran really target them and have really sort of hampered their interests. That being said, within the country, they're being now challenged by President Rouhani to divest themselves and of of corporate interests. And, and that's then clearly they don't want to because, you know, there's they make a lot of money doing what they're doing and no one likes to, once you have money, you don't want to give it up, right? What do they do with their money? I mean, is it that they're buying weapons? Is it just that there are some very, very rich revolutionary guards? It's a whole um, infrastructure, you know, they, they, it's a, it's, it's an infrastructure. They make money, you know, guards, when you're, when you're in the guards and you retire, you join these, one of these companies and, and, or if you are, a family of a guardsman who's been martyred during the Iran-Iraq War. You know these companies are essentially the, your family are pensioners. These companies that they give a slice of the of some proceeds to you. So that they are they are, if you will, Iran's version of the military-industrial complex. Are they are they buying missiles and weapons? No, that that's the state. The state does that. The government does that. They are conducting economic. You know they have banks. They have Construction companies that that get contracts from the government or from private parties, but mostly from the government, from the supreme leader's office or from the elected government to build things and do things. What percentage of this vast beast is still a military force at all? I mean, what percentage of them are, uh, you know, actively take up arms to defend the regime or to uh, fight outside its borders? Well, I, I and I and I can sense that you're struggling with it because it's kind of kind of foreign concept it, to us as Americans. Absolutely, to have, to have yes. Yeah, yeah. The Marine Corps and the Air Force don't don't have a business empire, uh, and, and in, in Iran, it's 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 quite uh, it's perverse that way, I guess. I, I've heard it's the um, same in Egypt also uh, that they the yes, Egyptian no, army makes and, and, and refrigerators. I, yeah. I remember reading that. Yeah, and in China too. Now you you see Xi Jinping wants to sort of, you know, rein in the People's Republic Army because they have business interests. No, they have they have anywhere between, as I said, two hundred fifty to four hundred thousand active guards. Those are okay. Those also, are active. Got it. Those are active, but the, the ones who are they they have an equal number who have who have been retired. And generally, when you retire, you know, from from being an active duty. You go into into the, the guards business empire and you you fit somewhere in there whether it's in oil and gas or construction or banking or insurance there's a job for you so actually it, it, it is and, and many of these companies employ Iranians who are not in the guards right they they employ you know this they control anywhere between 40 to 60 percent of the economy so a lot of people work in these companies that the guards run to say that they're an integral part of the state, doesn't even begin to describe it, right? <laughs> no, it's, it's so it's very hard. I mean, you know, in, in, here in the U.S., we target the guards a lot 
But in Iran, there are many people that they may not be happy with what the guards are doing or their policies, but are actually working for guard the guard the guards in some of these companies. <laughs> um, and it's, it's it's very hard. And Rouhani is trying to do this. He's trying to to have them get out of the economy and stick to being a a military force. It's very hard to do though, you know, when when they control so much of it. Uh, and, and you're going to see. The, in Iran, you're going to see the guards pushing back and saying, you know, no, we're not. We, we don't want to stop our business interests because, you know, this business interest sustains those people who have served us and families of those who who have uh, who are their sons have been, you know, have been killed um, uh, during the war. I was wondering if you could also talk about for very briefly where else. Iran is fighting. I was really caught by what you said about, you know, the sense that if we don't fight them there, they will fight us here, which, of course, is a military doctrine that's very familiar to people in the United States. We're not talking about yes. the same us, them necessarily. Yes. Uh, but the yes. whole idea of having expeditionary forces so that you don't have to defend your borders from the inside. So where else is Iran fighting? Well, they were very active in Iraq. Yeah, I think Iran is, has great influence in Iraq, and, and, and they, they they help train and mobilize these these popular fronts. You know, these Shia different Shia militia there. They're they're very active in in Lebanon, in southern Lebanon, as you know, with Hezbollah. They they're active in parts of Afghanistan, recruiting uh, Shia militia. You know, and, and I think that you know, Iran does this because it it feels very insecure in this region that it's in. We look at Iran. A lot, and they, you know, they, they, they can be such a malign force uh, in the region, a malevolent force. But the way they see it is that they're surrounded by countries that don't like them, and that have a very powerful ally in the United States that that has far greater capabilities than Iran does. So how they try and match that force structure that's that's against them is by you know tying themselves up with these militias and, and getting into countries and fomenting unrest to, in their minds, level the, the playing field a bit. Just one last question. Far as Syria goes, what would winning look like for Iran? Well, I think there are no winners in Syria. I mean, <laughs> it's like in the old days of the Roman Empire when they would go and if, if, they, if they couldn't really, if the war wasn't going their way and they wanted to conquer people, they would just burn the the city down, the town down, and they would say, you know, they'd call it peace and they call it victory. Who's going to rebuild Syria? Iran doesn't have the capabilities or the, or the money to rebuild Syria. Syria is now a divided country with all different different parts of the country occupied by, by different forces claiming sovereignty over it. I, I think for them, for Iran, for them, victory looks like being there and, and, and having a military footprint there that enables them to deter an Israeli strike also gives them connectivity to Hezbollah, being able to arm and resupply Hezbollah. As long as they can do that, they would call it victory. I don't think they have any they have any intention of, of rebuilding Syria and, and making it a making it a you know a prosperous country. Although they, they would mind it, it be that, but they don't they don't have those capabilities uh, to do that. Well, Amir, thank you so much for joining me to talk about this. Oh, it was great to be with you, and I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this week's show. If you enjoyed it, run forth into the streets and proclaim it to all and sundry. Or, failing that, 
leave us a review on iTunes, just like Unleash the Fury did recently. Very worth your time. Five stars. Probably my favorite military national security pod. Good deepish dives that are still accessible. Plenty of variety from history to current events. Thank you, Unleash the Fury. War College is Matthew Galt and me, Jason Fields. See you next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.